0: Isaiah chapter 12, 1 to 3. In that day you will say, I will praise you, Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away, and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself, is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And next we're going to go over to John chapter 4. We'll continue there. John chapter 4, verse 1 to 14. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life.
1: Well, good to be together. Great passage, cracker, that one. So let's uh, keep it open, pray, and we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you we pray that you might help us to do that tonight please help us to understand your word change us through it we pray in Jesus name amen well Luke messaged me a few weeks ago Uh, he said do you want to get a coffee now how do you react to that yeah seems innocent here's what goes on in my head pure fear all right (laughs) it's not that Luke's a particularly scary guy no offense wherever you are Luke Uh, but I read his message and he didn't say what we were getting a coffee to talk about. Did I do something wrong? And I start replaying in my mind all the things I've said and done around him lately and there's lots of possibilities, right? <laughs> and it must be pretty bad because he's not even saying what it is. It must be one of those things that you only bring up once you're with the person so they can't run away. Or so Sunday through to Thursday, I'm just sweating bullets, right? We meet up and it turns out there was nothing, you just wanted to catch up and have a coffee. But do you know that feeling? What's going to happen when I meet my boss? What's going to happen when I meet that girl? What? (laughs) Good to know you're with me. (laughs) What is going to happen when I meet Jesus? Have you ever thought about that one? the one who the Bible calls the king of kings, the one who created you and died for you, and the one who's perfect in every way that you're not. How do you imagine that meeting going? Maybe you're not a Christian here tonight. Good to have you with us. How do you imagine it would be like if you were to come to Jesus? If you are a Christian, good to have you with us tonight. What do you picture? How do you imagine as you pray to him or as you wait for the day that you stand in front of him? what's he like? What are you like? Now you can actually get a preview to the answer of that question by watching what happened when Jesus met people like you when he was on the earth, can't you? A chapter before this one, chapter 3, Jesus met the self-confident, respected, religious man, Nicodemus, who was actually quite surprised to discover that Jesus wasn't very impressed and his carefully constructed resume was actually worthless And in tonight's passage, Jesus meets the very opposite. In John chapter 4, we find out one of the longest and most beautiful stories in John's gospel so far. Uh, And did you notice its length? Verse 1 to verse 42, it's all one narrative. Uh, And as I mentioned, the longest so far. This meeting is quite significant to John, it seems. And here we find out what happens when Jesus meets a woman from another race with a past. Three barriers, which in that culture would make her a person to avoid, to look down on, perhaps even to despise. And yet what happens when Jesus meets her has so much to teach us about what will happen when we meet Jesus. So here's the plan. What we're going to do, we're going to talk through the story by noticing those three barriers, race, gender and her past. And then we'll step back and we'll notice three things that it teaches us about Jesus. Number one, he's the one who knows us and still wants us. Number two, he's the one who can give us water that will quench our thirst. And number three, he's the one who leads us to worship the Father. That's where we're going. But the story begins with Jesus on a road trip north. Verse three, he's heading up north. And verses four, five, and six, he passes through a place, you can see it on the screen, called Samaria. And he stops there to have a rest at a well at lunchtime. It's hot, he's thirsty, he's tired. And don't miss that, by the way. Did you notice that in verse six? Keep your Bibles open. John chapter four, verse six, he's tired. He's tired. From his journey. Jesus is fully God and yet he got tired. When he became a man, it's not like he took on a costume of a man but secretly underneath it's Superman. No, 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 he actually became a human, a real human, a full human and so he gets tired and rests at a well. It's a bit like the ancient pit stop at a servo up on your road trip and verse 7, a woman comes to the well and he asks her for a drink except this is not a place you would stop if you were a Jew. This is the servo you drive past, the one you're a little bit afraid of, the one you cross your legs a little bit more and hope nothing comes out, and you just drive a little bit faster. (laughs) Not a place you'd stop, and also not the person that you would ask for a drink, because here's the first potential barrier that we find between Jesus and this woman, and it's her race, racism. Now, it's a big issue today, isn't it? It's not a new issue. In fact, as far as I'm aware, there's been evidence of racism in every culture in human history. And it was in Jesus' culture as well. Look at verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. He's a Jew, she's a Samaritan. There's the issue. Now there's a little history here. This won't be on the exam, but I'll tell you the story. Uh, Jews and Samaritans were distant cousins. All right? If you go back in time, they've got the same ancestors. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then the tribes and then their relatives uh, a long way back. But they're actually kind of like the relatives that broke away. They're like the cousins at family gatherings that no one wants to talk about. Um, you see, in, in the time of King David, they were united as one, uh, one kingdom. I think we've got a picture of that. There we go. Profound. Uh, they were united as one kingdom. <laughs> But then the north part of the kingdom rebelled against the south, because the south was the place where the capital city was. The south was the place where the king was, the power was. Uh, it was actually the place that the Old Testament tells us God chose for the temple. And so you've got the king, the capital, and the temple in the south, but the northern half get jealous, and they, they break away, and they set up their own king, their own capital, their own temple. And so you've got the, the rebel northern kingdom, and then the legitimate southern kingdom, uh, which was called Judah, which is where you get the word Judaism and the word Jew. And so the Jews, like Jesus and his disciples were, they were descendants of that southern kingdom, but the rebel kingdom was what became Samaria. Except then the breakup got even messier because both kingdoms did evil, right? But the north, Samaria, was worse. And the Old Testament tells us that as punishment, God allowed the Assyrian Empire to come in and conquer that northern kingdom, and they had this strategy, the Assyrians, to control their empire, to keep everyone under control. What they would do, they would bring in people from other countries, other races, other ne- ethnicities, and deliberately get them to mix together so that they all kind of lost a bit of their sense of who they were as, as an individual country. That, that made them easier to control, and that, that's what happened to Samaria. And so you fast forward to Jesus' day, and what you find is that Samaritans are both cousins, you know, they're the distant relatives, the ones who broke up the family but they're also mixed race. They're they're ethnically different, and culturally different, in fact, as well, because they'd absorbed the cultures of all those other countries that had been mixed with. For example, they had a different Bible. They left out everything except the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, which they also changed a little bit. And they had a different temple, which which actually comes up a bit later in the conversation with the woman, uh, verse 20. But there's the history And that's why we have um, evidence, actually, of incredible prejudice between the Jews and the Samaritans, the way they felt towards each other. There's an ancient writer called Josephus, and he tells us about fights in this century in Jesus' time, fights so intense that they had to send in the Roman soldiers to kind of calm things down, much like uh, in the Middle East today, some of the close neighbors can feel about each other today. And so verse 9, it says, the Jews do not associate with Samaritans, all right, none of that's on the test, but Interesting background, Jews do not associate with Samaritans, they avoided the area and they wouldn't drink from a cup that was touched by a Samaritan. So what about Jesus? When the the strictest Jews wouldn't even pass through the area, Jesus not only passes through, but he stops and he waits by himself. Verse 8, he sends his disciples off for a Macca's run, but he doesn't go. It's not because he's lazy, it's not because he's out of shape. No, 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 he waits deliberately because he wants to meet a Samaritan. He wants to meet this woman. And he approaches her, verse 7, and he starts the conversation. And this is actually a familiar scene if you know your Bible. There's a bit of a wink in this, in this scene. It's a bit like saying um, a man from EV Night went to a jewelry store and came out with a ring. <laughs> Still with me? It's good. <laughs> You hear that, and you know where this story is going. Now, if you've read the Bible, you know what happens in a story where a man waits by a well and then asks a woman for a drink. Where does it end? Same place, actually. It ends in a wedding. And so by the end of this story, well, they're not married in a temporary earthly marriage, but Jesus has invited her, and in fact, eventually the whole town, into a relationship with him that will last Longer than a marriage, actually, eternally. Uh, Verse 14 calls it eternal life. So do you notice the way that Jesus waits by this well? He intentionally wants to meet this Samaritan woman. Uh, In fact, uh, by the end of it, verse 40, he ends up interrupting his road trip to stay with them a couple of days so they can teach them and, and lots of them come to believe in him. Race is no barrier for Jesus In fact, it's quite the opposite. He knows that the plan of God has always been to reunite these distant cousins, and in fact, all nations, in him. And so despite his culture, Jesus has no prejudice towards a Samaritan or any race. He loves her. He wants to know her and he wants to give her eternal life with him. Now, it's worth applying this briefly to us because we are called to be like Jesus, are we not? don't be racist, don't tell racist jokes, don't be prejudiced. If all the Jews around Jesus had read their Bibles, they would have known that it says quite clearly God made all people in His image. And time and time again, the Old Testament prophesied that when the promised one, the Messiah, came, He would bring people from all nations, all tribes, all ethnicities, to find salvation and reconciliation in Him. Jesus was living out what they should have known. Brothers and sisters, are we living out what we should know from our Bible? But be careful. See, I don't know how you're reacting to that, but maybe you're nodding along in your heart. Yes, this is what we need to be talking about. Be careful. That you're not just getting that from our culture rather than the bible our culture that's made this such an issue at the moment because yes our culture can say true things but our culture is not god and if 50 years ago it was culturally appropriate to be racist and today it's culturally appropriate to not be racist you're actually no different do you see that you they bought into what's cultural you're buying into what's cultural Which means you're probably also absorbing all those things that in 50 years' time from now, they'll say, how the heck did they do those things? Notice that Jesus actually went against his culture in his love for all people. And so guys, celebrate any progress that our world actually does make in ending the evil of racism. Celebrate it. But don't follow the culture, follow the Bible. It was saying these things long before our culture was. God loves all people. And there's a view out there that says Christianity made people racist, contributed to the problem. No. The greatest force against racism in the history of the world has been the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me repeat that. In the history of the world, there has been no more powerful force upholding and defending the dignity of every person than the message of Jesus Christ and the Bible. The idea that every person has inherent worth, equal worth, regardless of their race, their gender, or even their ability, did not exist in any culture on the planet before the Bible. And even today, actually, it only exists in cultures that have been deeply influenced by the Bible. Now, there have been problems, of course, haven't there? Just as every culture in history has had a racist edge, so at times people in those cultures have twisted the Bible to make it say what they wanted it to say. And evil things have been done with the Bible. It's tragic. As, in fact, has happened with every other philosophy and ideology. But every single one of those people, they did it against the Bible, not because of the Bible. And the solution was not that they should have rejected the Bible, but they... They should have actually listened to the Bible. More Bible, not less, was the answer. And so just, I'm saying this to to help you beware of a narrative that our world will will tell you. I've been reading a book lately about uh, the history of Homo sapiens, the history of humans. And the author loves to mention all the Christians who did wrong. The Christians who abused the Bible in their racist abuse of people. He loves the bad examples. But when he gets up to the part about how the slave trade was stopped in England, oh, he conveniently forgets to mention that it was Christians who drove that change. William Wilberforce, John Newton, who wrote the song Amazing Grace, no, 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 those names drop out, the word Christian drops out, it was just society. No, it was Christians who ended the transatlantic slave trade and may Christians Pray that Christians continue to do good in this area. The problems aren't fixed, are they? But brothers and sisters, don't buy that narrative. Look at Jesus, the furthest thing from racist, the lover of all souls. Don't follow our culture, but do follow him. All right, we went deep on that one, didn't we? (laughs) let's keep moving race was no barrier when when Jesus met this woman and so we'll continue the story and we find that many similar things can be said about the second barrier we won't repeat them all but the second possible barrier that that could have come between them was actually her gender look again at verse 9 did you notice she says you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman and actually, skip down to verse 27, the disciples get back from their Maccas run, family dinner box in hand, and verse 27, it says, they were, they were surprised to find him talking with a woman. They were surprised to find him talking with a woman. Why? Well, not only racism, but gender prejudice was rife in that culture, even though, just like race, the Old Testament is very, very clear on the value of both male and female. Despite that, in Jewish culture, do you know what they believed? They had the attitude that for a rabbi... Jesus was a rabbi, for a rabbi, it was a complete waste of time to talk to a woman, to try and teach her. Terrible. Jesus doesn't play by those rules. In fact, he has a a very long conversation with her and as we walk through it, I just want you to notice his respect for her, the way he takes her seriously, cares about her, honors her questions, notice his gentleness toward her, But most of all, notice his desire for her to know her and to have her know him. So we'll pick it up where we left off in verse 9. And you can see there her face filled with surprise that he would ask her for a drink. And so then imagine her further surprise when he claims to be able to offer her something better than any water she's ever tasted. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink... You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Not just water, living water. What does that mean? Well, if we're confused, we're in good company, so is she. Verse 11, she says, you don't even have a bucket. (laughs) It's a very deep well, she says, and it is actually a deep well. We know where this well is. Uh, It dates back to Jacob, their common ancestor, and it's still there today. You can go and visit it. You can actually still drink from it, and it is a very deep well. It's just a fact. (laughs) She speaks the truth. So who are you, she says. Who are you, Jesus? What are you saying about yourself? Verse 12, are you saying you're better than our famous ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? Could that be? Yes, Jesus essentially says, yes, I am greater. You see, this is physical water. I've got something better than that. Verse 13, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them, Will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So, whatever this this living water is, it doesn't just meet physical needs, does it? No, it meets spiritual needs and it meets them so deeply that it ends that thirst and leads to eternal life. What is this living water? Just flick over a couple of chapters to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, verse 37, because Jesus uses almost the exact same image, almost the exact same words. John decides to explain it this time. Verse 39, chapter 7, verse 39. The writer, John, explains by this. Jesus meant the Spirit, the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were later to receive. So living water is God's Holy Spirit. It's God Himself. We saw that in chapter 3, it's, it's God's Spirit that gives a person new spiritual life that causes them to be born again, alive again, spiritually. God himself comes in and changes a person from the inside out so that we know the truth about God and in fact we have God himself in relationship and we have him living in us, giving us new desires to please him and new ability to carry out those desires. Which means, as we heard so helpfully in that video, new clarity, new purpose, New meaning and new hope, new love, new joy, and one of the results eternal life. Come back to John chapter 4, verse 14. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life, life beyond the grave, not just existence, but life without end. And this is phenomenal news, especially when you consider her past. We come to the third potential barrier between them, one that's more serious than race and gender. She's got a past. Like you and me, she's a sinner. Now skip ahead for a second down to verse 18. And we find out that Jesus miraculously knows her past before she ever tells him. He says, the fact is you've had five husbands. Five husbands. And the man you have now is not your husband. And this is actually the moment she realises, this is not just a normal human being talking to me, this is a, verse 19, a prophet, he, he knows her. Miraculously, he knows five failed marriages and the man she now has is not her husband. That last detail tells you this isn't some kind of tragic series of events. Uh, no, this is a woman who's gone from man to man and yet hasn't been faithful to her promises of marriage. And now every time she goes home to this man who's not her husband and sleeps with him, she sins. That's the implication. Which, by the way, it's worth pointing out in case you're wondering, if you live together and sleep together, does that make you married? No. Jesus says, the man you now have is not your husband. So likely this lady had a reputation, certainly she had a past. Why does Jesus bring it up? So you'll notice as you read the Gospels that Jesus has a way of getting to the heart of an issue with a person. And for her, it's this... It's sexual sin and, 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 and failed relationships. And this is something that she'll actually need to get forgiveness for if she's to have eternal life. But did you see that Jesus already knew this about her when he offered her eternal life just a moment ago? This is a problem. But it's one he can solve. In fact, it's the one he came to solve. She can have eternal life. And so you fast forward to the end of the story, verse 39 to 42, and she believes in him. And she goes and gets others and tells them about him and they believe in him. And they all come to the conclusion at the end of verse 42, look at it there, this man really is the savior of the world. The savior. He can save even her. He can take away her past. He can forgive her sins. He can give her eternal life. And it's implied here and, and made clear in other account, uh, other stories in John that, that she'll have to change her ways. She'll have to turn to follow him. But he's, he's able to save her. Now, I wonder if you noticed Jesus' gentleness as we went through that. Maybe it doesn't feel very gentle to you. He, he does press right where she saw, doesn't he? But that's actually necessary. It's like surgery. But let me try and show you that he has this conversation with her in the in the most gentle way possible. See, we skipped verses 16 to 18, where Jesus raises the topic in a way that assumes the best of her. Go and call your husband. He doesn't embarrass her, gives her a chance to to, to come forward. But she hides behind a half-truth, verse 17, I've got no husband. And Jesus doesn't say, liar! No, no, no. He starts very gently, doesn't he? He says, that is true. And yet, I know the whole truth you see how gently he navigates into this sensitive topic. And I want to come back uh, in a second and focus on the big message of this passage, but I do feel compelled to say a word to Christian men here. Because we've seen Jesus' respect, gentleness, warmth towards this woman. Let me ask you, Christian men, are you like your Saviour? Do you treat women not the way our culture dictates, but instead like Jesus? Do you treat women with the gentleness and honor, integrity and love that every person deserves? Throughout the Gospels, we see that Jesus is not afraid of women. He doesn't use women. He doesn't shame women or bring women down. He welcomes, respects, affirms, and befriends them. Look how Jesus honors this woman in verses 25 and 26 by making her the person in the whole gospel to whom he most clearly declares his identity. She says to him, I know the Messiah is coming. And he says, I'm him. No one else gets it that clear. She has the honor of hearing that more clearly than anyone else in John's gospel, as well as the honor, I would suggest, of being the most effective disciple. Think about this. Within just a couple of days, she's evangelized her whole town, and many of them have become followers of Jesus. It took the guys a lot longer than that. This passage honors women. The Bible honors women. Jesus honors women. Christian men, do you honor women? And so it might be the case, actually, that you are trying really hard to do that, but you might just be a 20-something guy. And let's be honest, you might just have a limited amount of life experience and perhaps not the most self-awareness of how you come across. You might not be coming across the way you intend. And so I want to suggest it might be helpful to get one another's help in this. You might want to ask some of your Christian sisters that you trust, what are your experiences of interacting with me? Am I doing anything that's not good? Good. it like for you to live as a woman how can i understand that better and christian women tell them. but be gracious and all of us look to jesus see his love for all people regardless of race and gender which brings me to a point where i want to say i'm a little bit uncomfortable with the sermon i've preached so far see is this a passage about race and gender Or have I just brought two big issues in our culture, in our day, and, and read them into the passage? We don't want to do that, do we? We want to let the Bible tell us what's important to it. Do we think that race and gender are the big point of this passage? Important as they are, I don't think so. Now I do take some comfort that John has made this the longest narrative in his book so far and it does mention race and gender a few times quite clearly and so I do think that John wanted us to see these things. I take some comfort in that. But if those things aren't the big thing, let's, let's ask what is and let's, let's turn our attention now to focus on that and then I'll feel better by the end. What's the big thing if it's not those things as important as they are? Verse 10, Jesus says... If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink. If you knew those things, there's the big thing. The big thing in this whole account is Jesus. Who it is that asks this lady for a drink? Who is this? Who is Jesus and the gift of God? What does he offer? And so now let's take a step back and we'll just notice three things that we've seen about Jesus and and how they help us to think about what it will be like when we meet him. Number one... Jesus is the one who knows us and still wants us. Is this you? Most people live caught between the longing to be known and the fear that if they found out what I'm really like, they wouldn't love me. Most of us, even with our closest friends, don't feel comfortable sharing everything. But Jesus knows All of it. He knew this woman's past before she told him. In fact, likely, he knew that she was coming, which is why he stopped to wait at that well. And in this conversation, he raises her past so that he can say, I know about it. I can fix it. But you need to know that I know, so that we can't pretend that there's, we're not going around pretending there's no problem here. That's actually the key to it going well with Jesus when we meet him. See, there's no past that he can't forgive and there's no pattern of sin that he won't help you fight, but you have to come to him knowing he knows rather than doing that Aussie thing of just pretending we're better than we are, pretending uh, that that it's all okay. Nicodemus chapter 3, he found out that's not the way in. But to the lady who is already painfully aware that there is no way in for her, Jesus says, actually, yes, there is. I know you and I still want you. I want to spend eternity with you. And so if you're here tonight with a past, which is all of us, but maybe with a big past, whatever it is, whether it's, bad decisions, addictions, failures in marriage, sexual and other things, whatever it is. See what it's like to meet Jesus. You can turn from your past knowing that He knows and yet He still wants you. You do need to do that, by the way. You do need to turn your life around to follow Jesus as you, as you believe in Him. And so do that now if you haven't. Don't imagine you can have both. But if you do turn, if you have turned, You can draw near to him knowing that your prayers don't land in reluctant ears. When one day you stand in his presence, he will say, I'm so glad you're here. You have a friend who knows you and still wants you. That's number one. Number two, Jesus is the one who gives the water that quenches our thirst. Let me tell you something I've learned. I'm coming up on seven years of marriage. Something I learned from seven years of marriage, not the most significant thing, but one thing, I have very little awareness of what's happening for me physically in my body. Monique will tell me, you're hot. Not like that. You're, you're cold. <laughs> uh, well, that too. But uh, she'll, she'll say, I'll say, no, I'm not. She'll say, yes, you are. You're sweating. I've got the fans on. You're in a jumper. So I, I have very little awareness of, of those things. Psychologists or doctors, you can help me understand that. But... Sometimes I'll just feel weird, and I can't work out why. I'll think maybe I'm hungry, so I'll go and eat something. Maybe I'm bored, I'll go for a run. Doesn't seem to help. Eventually, Monique says, are you thirsty? Have you had anything to drink today? Oh, that's what it is. I haven't drunk since Wednesday. So, um, <laughs> but I didn't realize my thirst. I was doing everything I could to, to fix it without knowing what the problem was. Now that's first world thirst, isn't it? We've got unlimited water on tap whenever we want. We never experience real thirst. A movie doesn't count, right? A place like this, in the dry desert, around this well, everyone knew the necessity of water. If you had no water, you just get thirstier and thirstier and thirstier until you die. Water is life. Look what Jesus says, verse 13... Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. That's obvious. That's true, isn't it? It's true not just about water, but it's true about all of the wants and needs of life. Jesus is saying, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. You go to work to put food on the table only to wake up hungry the next day. You save up to get the deposit for the house only to get another bill to pay. You invest in that friendship and then they move away. Everyone who drinks this water gets thirsty again. The cycle is endless. We never make it. Like Angelica Schuyler, you will never be satisfied. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) But Jesus says there is actually another way. Verse 14, look at verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water I give them will never thirst. Never. How is that possible? Because there's a deeper thirst. A thirst that we may not even be consciously aware of, though we try lots of things to fill it. And we're caught in the endless cycle of trying to meet that thirst with all the wrong things. An African man named Augustine, he chased it in relationships, in sex, then in philosophy and learning, finding that none of those things worked until finally he became a Christian. And when he wrote his life story, here are some of the words he chose to start it. They're addressed to God. He said, the thought of you, the thought of you God, stirs us so deeply that we cannot be content until we praise you we can't be content because you made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you whether we realize it or not that's what Andrew shared in that video sounded cheesy it did sound cheesy it's true Whether we realize it or not, our hearts thirst for God. They were were made to thirst for God, to thirst for true meaning, for true hope, for true relationship, to be enfolded in the arms of an infinite God whose power has no end, whose wisdom never fails, who knows us and still wants us. There is a thirst that's deeper than any thirst. We long for the infinite. And nothing of this finite world can touch the bottom of that thirst. But thankfully, there is a water that's more real than water. Verse 14, Jesus offers water that quenches that thirst. God himself, we've seen what it is, God himself in the Holy Spirit together with us for eternity. And brother or sister, if you believe in Jesus, you have this water. Don't chase satisfaction the way your neighbor does. It does look good in the glossy photos, doesn't it? But whoever drinks that water will be thirsty again. Remember who it is that you really long for and actually already have and turn instead to Him. Verse 14 says that this water wells up. It rises. I don't know, but I wonder if that means that our satisfaction grows as we get to know Him better welling up until that day when we meet Jesus face to face. Oh, what will happen when we meet Jesus and find that He quenches all our thirsts perfectly, fully, and for eternity in His presence? People who catch that, the more you catch that, you find yourself set free from the chase. You find you're satisfied even when you do go hungry. Jesus is the one who gives water to quench our thirst. So thirdly and finally, Jesus is the one who leads us to worship the Father. You see, so far we've seen that God wants us, He wants us to relate to Him, but we haven't heard anything about how He... Sorry, he wants us and he wants to relate to us, but we haven't heard anything about how he wants us to relate to him. How are we to worship him? And that brings us to the part of the conversation that we haven't touched yet. Jesus enters the the worship wars. And even today there are disagreements, aren't there, about how to worship. Some churches like to keep it all nice and neat and orderly, stand up together, sit down together. It's like a big Mexican wave. Other churches, they like to keep it nice and loose, nice and free-flowing. And, you know, the service isn't over until everyone's on the floor. That's how you know you can go home. In Jesus' day, the worship wars, they, they weren't about style, they were about the, the place. Look at the question that the, the, this woman asked of Jesus in verse 20. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place that they must worship is in Jerusalem. Is it this place or is it this place? That's her question and that question might seem a bit silly to us, but Jesus doesn't think so. In fact, look at verse 22 you can see that he actually does think there's a right answer. Salvation is from the Jews. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. The Jews worship what they do know. They've got it right. In verse 23, Jesus says there's a certain kind of worshipper that the Father seeks. There is actually a right answer That makes sense, doesn't it? Everyone has preferences on how they want to be treated. Unless you don't think God is a person, you think he's just some force, of course he would have preferences. I don't just come home from work and throw on loud punk music and start slamming air guitar and breaking appliances, hoping that somehow from that my wife will know that I really love her. No, no, no. I I start by working out what is it that she loves. What does she desire? How can I relate well to her? And God the Father has preferences and in this case Jesus says the Jews had it right, not the Samaritans, he did want them to worship in Jerusalem at the temple and yet he says he's brought a change. Because Jesus has come, because of his coming death on the cross, verse 23 Jesus says a time is coming and has now come when it's not about the place anymore. Look at verse 23, they won't need a temple. Now the true worshippers says will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? Well, it's it's not two ways of worshipping, like the spirit way, which is irrational, and then the the truth way, which is rational. It's not about being spontaneous, that's the spirit, and then authentic, that's the truth. It's not about worshipping with your emotions in spirit and then with your mind in, in truth. No, 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 we've actually seen the answer already. The chapter's already told us about the spirit. Chapter 3, we saw that the Holy Spirit is the one who causes us to be born again to new spiritual life. Chapter 3, verse 5. And so it's not about being spontaneously moved by the Spirit, but rather it's about the way that the Spirit actually transforms every part of your life so that you begin to do the things that God wants and all the different decisions that you make. As we've seen tonight, verse 14, Jesus is the one who gives this living water, the Holy Spirit, to to those who believe in him. And so to worship in the Spirit is to be someone who's come to Jesus and received the Spirit so that you don't need to go to a temple because you are a temple. God is living in you by his Spirit, moving you to want to please him and to more and more be able to please him in everything you do. And likewise, the truth has been a big issue in in John so far. Chapter 1, verse 17, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 14, no one has seen God, but we have seen the glory of the one and only Son of God, Jesus, it says, full of grace and truth. And so to worship in the Spirit and and truth, Jesus is the one who brings us the truth about God so that we don't worship a wrong view of God. No, we, we know what pleases Him. And what things don't please him. And so worship, according to Jesus, it's not a style of music, it's not a genre, it's not a place, it's not an emotion, it's a whole of life thing. It's the way you drive your car. It's the way you work hard when you're at work. It's the way you come to church. Maybe even when you're tired from fat, but you want to be there to encourage your brothers, good on you. It's the the way that you look out for the outsider when you're here. It's the way that you, it is the way, singing is part of worship, it's not the whole of worship, but it is part of worship, it's the way you sing with all your heart. It's the way you listen to his word as it's read and explained. It's the way afterwards you don't talk yourself up, but instead choose words that build others up. Worship is not trapped in a building or a few hours on a Sunday, but it's all of our lives where we know the truth about God because Jesus reveals it, And where we follow him closely by the power of the Holy Spirit, because Jesus gives the Spirit. And so that's what it means, verse 24, God is Spirit, and his worshippers must worship in Spirit and truth. And so watch how it all comes together. Are you ready for this? Jesus gives us water to quench our thirst, that's the Spirit. And Jesus leads us to worship the Father, that's by the Spirit. And these aren't two different things, but actually two sides of the same thing. See, living a life where your satisfaction is God, that actually worships Him. And as you worship Him, you grow your satisfaction in Him. As you think about Him and sing about Him, learn about Him and live for Him and live with Him, that actually grows your satisfaction in Him. Look at verse 32. Jesus perfectly demonstrates how these things come together. Jesus says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. They think he's got some kind of lunchbox. But he says, verse 34, look at verse 34. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. I got an email from Pinocchio's, the restaurant in Gosford, advertising a five-course meal. Each course, anyone else get this email? Each course paired with a matching wine, handmade pasta, seafood, seafood lamb man my mouth was watering like a fire hydrant I'm telling you and yet Jesus says that to him doing God's will is more sustaining and more satisfying than any food that you could offer I love to make my father happy that's what he says I love to make my father happy two days before my my wedding two days before I got married my dad took me to a cafe we had breakfast. I love cafe food. I like food in general. You probably picked that up. (laughs) You know what though? I can't remember what I ate that day. In fact, I can't remember almost anything else about that day. But I do remember this. I do remember that my dad told me that he loves me and that he's proud of me. That's better than any meal. There's no food in the world that compares to hearing that. Jesus says, I love to make my Father happy. That's my feast. That's my food. And so, do you see that the the worship of God that the Spirit enables is also the life that satisfies our thirst? And so, no wonder it says in verse 23 that the Father is seeking such worshippers. Not because He needs it, He doesn't. Not just because it's right and He deserves it, though He does but because he loves us and he knows that it's good for us. How good is Jesus? Has tonight helped you to picture what it will be like when you meet him? Maybe tonight, for the first time, you begin a new relationship. You you start to believe in him. You meet him. Do that. Believe in him even now. But then, ongoingly, as as you constantly meet with him in prayer, as you long for the day when you meet him face to face, And in the meantime, will you be like Jesus? Did you notice in this passage, he's the great evangelist. He not only dies on the cross to save the lost, but he lives his whole life deliberately seeking them out to bring them to know him. He waits by the well, intentionally putting himself in the path of this woman who needs his salvation. His food is to do the will of God, the work the Father sent him. In verse 35, he says, look... The fields are ripe for harvest. The one who reaps and harvests is harvesting a crop for eternal life. Jesus says people need saving. There's a harvest of souls ripe to discover eternal life, and he loves to bring it to them. So will you be like Jesus? And will you be like this woman, the one who saw the goodness of Jesus and said, come, come, come and see? Will you look for opportunities for those conversations that can bump a person from The path they're on toward Jesus's path and perhaps change their eternity. Will you say to people, Come, see Jesus? He knows you, and yet he still loves you. He has water that will quench your thirst, and he can lead you to worship the Father. Let's pray that God would do that. Father, we thank you that you have given us such a great salvation in Jesus that quenches our thirst. Teach us to worship you in spirit and truth in everything. And may we speak like this woman, evangelize like Jesus, and see many come to find that salvation too. In his name we pray. Amen.